Welcome back to the Northeast Newscast. This week, we're sitting down with Rashida Phillips, Executive Director of the American Jazz Museum in Kansas City's historic 18th and Vine District. This episode was made possible by Shemekas Online Market in Delhi. After nearly a year of being closed due to COVID-19, the district is beginning to see a little bit of activity. We'll discuss the museum's In the Yard campaign, their expanding programming, live music, and so much more. Thanks for joining us, Rashida. Thank you. Pleasure to be here again. That's awesome. So we interviewed you about a year ago, right when you were beginning the position. Um, But for those who aren't familiar, you know, since things have been a little wacky lately, why don't you give us a little introduction to yourself? Yeah, I think of the jazz standard, what a difference a day makes. It's like what a difference a year makes. That's the way that I feel. So just excited still to be here at the helm of the American Jazz Museum. Obviously, we've been pushing through a pandemic. You know, for me, coming from Chicago, I thought to myself, you know, how do I acclimate here? Things will slow down a little bit coming from a giant city like Chicago and just trying to get a sense of the space and the place and the neighborhoods, but did not quite prepare for a pandemic personally. (laughs) So I think it was an interesting opportunity in in the sense that everyone kind of had to take a step back. Right. And so while everything was new to me, everything was new to everyone else, too. So in that way, I think it was an interesting time to come aboard to get a sense of our organization and to think about rebuilding it. You know, I stepped into this this space uh, after a few years of, of a tricky time with this institution, you know, turnover of leadership, different staff, some initiatives that didn't work that well. And so for me to have an opportunity to kind of prepare a blank slate and come with something new, new ideas, new energy. We have quite a few new staff members here. We've upped the game. We've definitely gotten ourselves together in terms of a stabilized financial picture, which is wonderful. We've got a great board that's really energized, that's worked with me pretty well. And we've got some really competent staff, staff from you know various places in the city, from our communities, all kinds of experience and expertise, and really feel like it's a good fit across the organization. So staff-wise, it's amazing. You know, one thing we've had to think about are our musicians, right? We are a place of music. And while we showcase and exhibit it, we also present it. So the pandemic has produced an interesting kind of digital uh, revolution for us. We're able to kind of pull things online, think about virtual presentations and think about viewers who are not necessarily right here local. We always had, you know, tourists coming in from all over the world, from all over the country. But now we've got to think about a segment of our audience that might not ever come physically. And that's not a negative thing. I think that's a way for us to stretch ourselves more and become more accessible to the public. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And especially, you know, tackling some of those challenges with COVID on top of everything. So you recently came from Chicago, but you are from St. Louis, right? That's correct. What was your familiarity with Kansas City and its history around jazz before coming here? You know, it's the show me state. So I knew that there were some things that Kansas City was going to show me and I was looking forward to it. But being kind of a jazz scholar, a jazz fan and a vocalist in my own right, certainly the legacy of Parker exists everywhere. You know, Charlie Parker is it one of those sort of fathers of the music and really a geniuses that push the music forward. So that was an awareness that I knew about. Believe it or not, the John Baker film collection, which is a really big piece of our exhibition here uh, in the museum and behind the scenes, because it's, there's hundreds, if not thousands of titles and soundies and film clips from Americana and from jazz all over the country from years and years past. And when I was studying for my graduate degree in jazz history and research, the Baker Film Collection, I had jazz and film as a class, and it was the Baker Film Collection that we centered on. So to come here and to kind of see it in person, to see the reels, physical reels, has been really exciting. 
Um, but other than that, it's been a while since I've been to Kansas City, probably 20 plus years. And the last time I came, it was for a jazz festival with Bobby <laughs> Watson as a headliner. Cool. Yeah. How is the Kansas City Museum scene different? You know, you talked about how the Jazz Museum went through a struggle for a couple years there. Coming from a bigger city, what's it like transitioning to kind of the smaller market? I mean, we still have a ton of really cool museums in town, but is there a difference in the level of support they get? You know, the difference here is that we, we have a hybrid institution, right? So jazz entities across the country might just center on a museum only or a performance venue only. But the fact that we've got a working jazz club here, we've got a 500 seat gym theater, we've got a museum, we've got archives in the basement. We've got so many things happening here in Kansas City that make it unique and very exciting that you're really able to get a 360 view of what jazz is and what it presents itself as to be. Yeah. And talking about kind of you know, the district as a whole, you have got some great partners right here in this building and on the block too. The other day when you all um, announced your campaign for Charlie Parker's 101st birthday celebration and all of those, those things that go with that, you mentioned that Kansas City is barbecue, baseball, and jazz. And That's those right. are all right here in, you know, a two or three block radius. You can get it all here at 18th and Vine, which is really great that we're sort of nestled in this beautiful community where we have these great neighbors, we have these great institutions, everything at your fingertips. You know, I think there are some other cities that come to mind. Obviously, New Orleans kind of has that flavor with the French quarters or Memphis. You'll kind of get a strip or a street of things that are happening about town. But something about being in the neighborhood and getting a real neighborhood authentic feel is very interesting and unique here to Kansas City. And so speaking a little more about the campaign that's going along with the Charlie Parker 101st Celebration, do you want to speak a little more on that and how what that money is going to fund? Yeah. So it's called In the Yard because we want folks to come to our yard, quite honestly, learn about who we are and celebrate each other. Not to mention a nod to Charlie Yardbird Parker. So we're really playing a lot with that yard theme. But it's an important time. Uh, it's Charlie Parker's centennial still happening. You know, he'll turn 101 at the end of August. Hence the sort of goal of our campaign of $101,000 to help support all areas of the museum, mostly some of our education programs. We still have an early childhood program. We have a program for middle and high school students that teach the fundamentals and the excitement of jazz. But we also have these musicians, as I mentioned earlier, and it's been a tough year for those musicians. So we want to start something called the Casey Jazz Incubator, a pilot program where we'll, we'll have services for our musicians, services for our community whether it's around things like financial literacy, entrepreneurship, how to put a press kit together, kind of the basic grassroots and one-on-ones of just being in the business and what that means to survive as an artist. We want to provide that as well. And then we also want to think about our artifacts, you know, our wonderful jazz saxophonists in Disney for, for the time being that <laughs> will be coming back here. And for those who don't know, what's special about uh, Charlie's saxophone? Gosh, the Grafton sax, there's nothing quite like it. It's a plastic saxophone, beautiful cream and gold uh, and translucent kind of color. Um, and it was something that was handed to him kind of in this last minute moment of one of the most famous jazz concerts of all time. So jazz at Massey Hall happened in 1953 with all of the greats, Dizzy Gillespie, you know, uh, Charles Mingus, some of these great other instrumentalists that are from the music itself. And Parker didn't have a horn. He didn't have his horn to play. So <laughs> someone gave him this plastic saxophone. 
and the sounds that he created from it are just remarkable. If you listen to the album, you might not even recognize that he's playing such an instrument. But the beauty of it, as Bobby uh, Watson reminded us, is that, you know, it, it's not like it's a toy instrument, but it was it's more of a sentimental value, I think, than something that can always be toted around because it is quite fragile. Um, and it's just special. It's one of the last instruments that he played in his lifetime. And for us to bring it home, you know, to his hometown, it's been really important. And thanks to Cleaver, uh, Mayor Cleaver at the time, Congressman Cleaver, I really had a great vision there to bring it back to us. You know, I think... Um Bobby Watson talked the other day about it was a really special moment in his life when he got to hold it without gloves on, you know, feel connected to one of probably his biggest inspirations or mentors. You know, um, that's not something a lot of musicians get to experience. That's right. I mean, even holding it, you know, I had that moment where I was holding it as I transported it very carefully <laughs> down to Disney. Uh, there's a, we've got a couple of photos of me and the mayor, and I'm glancing at the mayor and saying underneath my mask, be careful, <laughs> you cannot <laughs> drop this baby. Because it really is, back into oh, City. <laughs> absolutely, it's so precious. And so I can only imagine Bobby's feeling of actually putting in the breath in the air for that instrument. And in, in many ways, you know, kind of, exchanging DNA. I mean, that sounds a little weird now in a <laughs> pandemic. We don't want to think about exchanging that sort of uh, level of biologicalness. Um, but something about it just feels like transcendental, really a spiritual experience, even being near it. So playing yeah. it, it's got to be real awesome. Uh, an instrument is definitely a personal thing, especially a wind instrument. So <laughs> yes, that's right. It's time to take a break to thank our sponsors. Shamika's Online Market in Delhi, offering catering and nationwide shipping at shamikasonline.com. Find their new deli at 16th and Swift in North Kansas City. Shamika's, where customers become friends and friends become family. And now back to the newscast. Uh, but we've got to think about preservation because we are that type of institution being a museum. We want to digitize things, offer it out to more people, and just keep the things that we have here in precious and wonderful condition. I think um, something that's really telling about your organization is you're not just working so hard to preserve the history, but really working on the future. You know, education and music is something that seems to always be the first thing that gets cut, you know, when there's budget issues, whether that's in schools or other programs. But having that here, like in the heart of what you would call, you know, the jazz district in Kansas City is really amazing. Um, so what will that celebration look like later this summer? Well, we're going to put on a parade, quite honestly. We're going to get everyone out, hopefully, safely, you know, outdoors, hoping for great weather that day. But we want this to be a real community rally. And what we're going to do is actually 101 yards down 18th <laughs> Street. So we plan to march probably there from the edge of the crossroads up through 18th and Vine and land everyone here at the museum to celebrate Parker, to celebrate our legacy, our music. I'm sure we'll have barbecue there. We certainly will have great music. And it'll just be a moment to celebrate Parker's 101 birthday as well. That's great. We're really looking forward to it. So looking back at your first year in this position, um, I'm sure it's not what you anticipated at all. But what are some of those things that you were still able to accomplish, even if it's not necessarily what you had in mind? Oh, gosh, I think this sort of digital revolution, like I mentioned, we had a hint that we needed to do more online. You know, everyone wants to create, re recreate their website. Sure. Everyone wants to kind of have uh, more ticketing services online. You know, those sorts of things, this sort of hedged us in that direction. And the beauty of jazz is that because improvisation is at the center of what we do, <laughs> 
we pivot all the time. And so it was just about actualizing that uh, pivoting. We're getting more digital, like I mentioned, digital engagement online, providing some activities online for families, providing a peek into our stages where we had some live streaming happening uh, for our musicians and really giving everyone just a taste of what's inside here. And we accomplished some exhibition features. We did have a beautiful fall exhibition called Saxophone Supreme that celebrated Parker's centennial. And we put that together with UMKC, the sound archives there. Chuck Haddock's helped us co-curate a really lovely exhibition that is digitized and on our website for people to enjoy as well. So that was pretty huge. So what were the biggest challenges that the museum faced, you know, with COVID and everything? I know you shut down for a period and now you are letting guests in, right, to see exhibits? That's right. We reopened in June and it was an interesting time because not not very many museums were going there. Right. But we knew that we have a community role here and that people look to us in the ways that they look to their churches, community groups, gathering spaces. It's just kind of a rhythm and a pulse of life. And so something about us opening our doors, even though we were at lower occupancy, even though we've got the safety protocols and the face masks and the distancing, all of that makes it a little different uh, for everyone. There was something that was really important about having our doors open, right? And so people would show up, they'd smile because they had a space and a place to land. I think that really rings true because... When I got here, there were people waiting outside for the doors to open. That's right. Which is awesome. (laughs) So the American Jazz Museum, you know, right next door to the Negro Lakes Baseball Museum, you all have used your space for other things besides just exhibits. Like every Monday, Hy-Vee is doing vaccinations downstairs, which I think is awesome. How are things like that moving toward turning the 18th and Vine District back to normal? You know, normal in quotation marks, because whoever knows where it's going to end up. First of all, how lucky am I to be next to the the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum? You know, I I see Bob Kendrick in the hallways and I pinch myself every day because he's such a wonderful person. But we are a community anchor here, right? So we have that responsibility to a lot of our neighbors that come by and see us for some of those services. I mean, that's really why those ideas of that incubator came out, because we knew that people would stop in here asking questions or just looking for some, some support or some help. And so being an anchor, we have sort of a different, a higher level of kind of responsibility to our community that maybe some other museums don't always have. So we just wrapped up celebrating Black History Month. But, you know, especially here in the 18th and Vine District, it's always Black history. That's right. How much is, you know, the history of this jazz district intertwined with the history of Kansas City? You know, I feel like you can't have one without the other. That's right. I mean, gosh, when you think about sort of the great jazz age of Kansas City, the 20s through the 40s and beyond, I mean, this area had at least 50 plus clubs, lounges, spots for people to enjoy and be entertained in, including up at 12th Street, too. So it was always this area that was bustling and welcoming to all kinds of populations, musicians, celebrities, all of that feel uh, from back in the day. And some of it still exists today. I think a lot of us are really looking for a renaissance of that feeling. We've got bits and pieces here. You can get that vibe. But at that high level, you know, black history was all about the Kansas City identity, really from the start and beyond. I know you spoke a little bit about the things that you knew as a jazz performer that were here before you came here. But what can visitors find here if they're new to jazz? You know, if they have little knowledge, they're not studying it, they haven't performed it, things like that. I think a little bit of everything. Jazz is more than just the music, right? It's a style. It's a feeling. It's a taste. All of that. So one of the nice things is that when you get into our building, you'll you'll see the changing gallery. 
And that's a space that changes out every three to four months with different features from jazz and expressionism. Our current exhibit, Jazz and the Black Aesthetic, really takes a visual artist approach and look at what that music looks like on a canvas. So it's really exciting to kind of have these bold paintings that are up, these 3D objects from a lot of our visual artists across the city. Uh, Most of them, all but one of them, did those Black Lives Matters murals across the city. And so to have them represented here is huge. Other than that, you know, we've got film, like I mentioned, in terms of the soundies, to see it on a screen, those live images is important. Our Blue Room Jazz Club, you can step in there and hear music. Hopefully we'll get that going soon. But if not, you're also surrounded by a lot of memorabilia from Kansas City artists and jazz musicians who really help create the sound, which is important. And then you see some life-size, you know, mannequins and sort of artifacts and ephemera that, you know, being up close to it, it just, you have a different feeling about seeing Ella Fitzgerald's sequin dress right in front of you, right? We always kind of have this picture of them on stage or we might've seen a photograph, but to have the body image of of Ella, it's just really powerful. So talk a little bit more about, you know, the family-friendly aspect of the museum. Like there's something for everyone, right? That's right. As I mentioned, we definitely have education programs. So every first Friday of every month, we've got jazz storytelling, which is a great program for youngsters, probably up to the age seven or eight, to just listen to jazz, to shake some things, to move their bodies, to understand the sounds that are involved in the art. So that's always fun because you get we get parents and caregivers who are wiggling around with their kids (laughs) um, and really just kind of getting their body into the movement of jazz along with those sounds and the vocabulary. And then just looking at the history, finding themselves, you know, growing out of that space that a lot of some of these jazz folks that we're featuring were youngsters. I mean, people like Parker, you know, he wasn't very old when he died. He's like 34 years old. And so some of his heyday is when he's 20 years old. And to be able to listen to what he was creating, I think is magical for young people to see themselves in that kind of art space. I'm sure it's inspiring for young musicians to see that, you know, there's so much potential in being that young age, you know, you don't have to have all this experience or all this knowledge necessarily to be creative and to be um, passionate about your music. Yeah. And we've got a studio space in the museum, too, where you can kind of experiment a little, you know, push some buttons, do some sort of funky combinations of sounds uh, just and create music of your own, which is always fun, too. What are some of those, um, you know, programming things for young musicians that are maybe a little bit like middle school, high school age, you know, they're trying to expand their music experience. Well, we talked about the pandemic really putting a damper, I think, on students of middle and high school age, too. You know, that age, you really want to be social, kind of hang out with your friends, not necessarily be up close to your parents or caregivers. And that's forced a lot on them, I think, through the pandemic. But Saturdays, we have a Jazz Academy program where we have combos of students who are learning to play instruments together in small groups. It's been so important because even when the schools have been down or they've been learning virtually, they're able to come together in a distance way and play with each other in the same, kind of the same space. That's been so important for them to still have that social connection to their peers and to learn you know, fundamentals of, of music and, and learn from great uh, instructors who themselves are professional musicians. That's great. And so tell me a little bit about you know, some of your instructors, those jazz, jazz educators that work with your programs. Yeah, Clarence Smith is the one who heads up our program. He's wonderful and he's assembled a lot of his colleagues on various instruments, whether it's guitar, keyboards, 
you know, vocals. Lisa Henry is a great vocal teacher and a professional vocalist too. And they kind of give these workshops and clinics, you know, every weekend to these students and, and coordinate them in ways that they're creating really beautiful and high quality music together. I hope we get to, you know, be in the presence of that soon. You know, I think one thing that a lot of people didn't realize they would miss or maybe didn't realize they would have to go without was live music. Those are things that were such staples of any genre. And just to not have that for almost a year is, it's crazy. (laughs) It is crazy. And Bobby Watson was here reminding us of that uh, during our press conference last week, how, you know, that that's something that can never really go away, right? I think there are ways that we navigate it, digitize it or put it on a screen or put it obviously on a record. We've always had the audio aspect of it. There's nothing better than being in person. So do you have plans to move forward with live music this summer? I hope so. I mean, the summer and the heat and our spaces, and I say our spaces because we even have a pavilion out back here. We're really looking forward to programming in that space too. Uh, it'll be wonderful for us to pull together our community outdoors, to also think about opening up our blue room, our gym theater. We've got a lot of space in there to stretch out. So we still want to be mindful, right? We're kind of still crawling out of pandemic. We still want to be really supportive of those who feel, com- feel comfortable coming together, but also creating enough distance that folks can enjoy themselves without being kind of, kind of conscious or feeling kind of strange about any germs circulating. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, like you're saying, this is a great opportunity. It was kind of the push you needed to provide more online resources. Do you oh, think yeah. those are things that are going to continue after all of this? Yeah, and they were coming. That's what's funny. They were always coming down the pike. It's just I think there was more urgency clearly behind it, you know, when things had to shut down. And we were just getting folks who were reaching out to us who missed us, who were wondering what they could do besides, you know, just Netflix, <laughs> Netflix binging, which is fun, too. But, you know, they really missed us. And so it's really a testament to how important we are to the community and important we are to our regional tourists, because there's also, you know, quite a few folks who will drive to see us and have something to do on the weekends that just kind of keeps their energy going. Yeah, personally, I think that's going to be something that is a lot more relevant to my life is those road trips you can take in a day or a weekend or, you know, and you want to find areas that there's a lot to do packed into a little place so you're not driving just for one thing. So I think, you know, for our friends that are maybe in Columbia or St. Louis or, you know, Manhattan, Kansas, I don't know, this would be a great spot to come and see see it all in one day. Absolutely. And it's, you know, many ways it's back to basics, like you mentioned, the sort of old fashioned road trips and landing in a space where you can just kind of be a novice and a tourist that we've got it all here, especially in 18th and Vine in Kansas City. I mean, even people who live in the city and maybe don't make it over here as often as they could. <laughs> yeah, there are quite a few folks that walk through our doors and they say, oh, I haven't been here in five or 10 years. It's amazing, you know, particularly with our changing gallery space, some of these new elements that they'd never seen before and notice they're just their eyes light up. Yeah, that's great. So you mentioned last time we interviewed you that the museum is not just a static place. It is a place that is growing and expanding and always changing. You know, what are some of those ways that you see the museum expanding in the future? Gosh, we're just now entering into a strategic planning process. So I do want to let folks know that strategic planning, visitor experience, these are all the sorts of things that, you know, the board and I and staff and our community will take a look at moving forward into the future. So we're really looking forward to what's new. I can say that we just hired a brand new uh, director of 
curatorial affairs and collections. And she's coming directly from the National Museum of African-American Music in Nashville. And the reason I mention that is they just opened their doors at the beginning of this year. They've got brand new technology, brand new you know, display cases, this whole sort of vibe and verve that we'll look to pick up on some of that in Kansas City. So it can feel more active, more interactive and engaging to a lot of our visitors and won't feel so static. But it's a living art, right? So those, that's why it's important for us to celebrate our musicians uh, especially the ones that are living now and give them spaces and places for them to perform, talk, mentor, have these sorts of conversations that are really needed for all of us to grow and stretch more. Yeah, of course. Um, so are there any closing thoughts you have for our listeners? Just, you know, come come on down and see us, uh, especially come see us at the end of August when that saxophone will be back here. Uh, Charlie's in Disney just for a little bit of time. Uh, but we know in our hearts, you know, if he had that opportunity to go perform there, we'd like to think his, his sort of um, excitement around the music would have taken him there to perform it live. And so in that spirit, we're sharing this year and the centennial time with him. And then looking towards the future, he's getting a Hollywood star of fame. Uh, and, and this year and next year, you get a couple of years to kind of pull it together, raise the amount of money that the state is needed to put it in. So we're also looking forward to supporting some of that. And maybe we'll, you know, we'll bring Kansas City out to Hollywood and support with them, too. Um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to share all of the awesome things that are going on down here. Uh, we really look forward to the summer, getting things back up running and in person. You know, we've really enjoyed the online stuff, but whatever we can do to get together. Absolutely. And come see us and we'll be getting the music out there live soon. And that was Rashida Phillips, Executive Director of the American Jazz Museum. For more information and ticketing, go to AmericanJazzMuseum.org. This episode of the Northeast Newscast was made possible by Shemeika's online market in Delhi. And thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Northeast Newscast. For all our episodes, articles, and more, visit NortheastNews.net. For the Northeast News, I'm Abby Hoover.